Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, report were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. No. Good boy. Keep your hat on, pet. Why? We're playing dinner at the North Pole, remember? So we need to wear our big warm coats inside. When it comes to food or heat, many families will face impossible choices this Christmas. Please support the St. Vincent de Paul Annual Appeal. Donate locally or at svp.ie. Thank you. Ronnie O'Neill III wanted his family to convert to his religion. When they wouldn't, he decided it would be better off to remove them all from this world. This is Monsters. Ronnie O'Neill III was a lifetime Florida resident spending most of his time in the Tampa area, but also resided for a short time near Miami. In 2018, Ronnie was 29 years old and was living with his ex-girlfriend, Kenyana Barron, who went by Kiki. She was 33 at the time. Ronnie and Kiki had two children together. A daughter, Ronivia, was born in 2009, and a son, Ronnie IV, was born in 2010. Ronivia was born with cerebral palsy and was also diagnosed with autism. She was nonverbal and had struggled to walk when younger, but had been walking more recently, though she still used a wheelchair on occasion. Ronnie and Kiki were not together any longer, and Ronnie had been seeing another woman who he had a more recent child with. Ronnie had been shot in a random drive-by in 2017 and was nearly killed. After he was released from the hospital, his family wouldn't allow him to live with them, so Kiki took him in and let him stay with her while he recovered. Kiki had gone back to school and had been attending Hillsborough Community College at the time. Ronnie had become a follower of the Nation of Islam and was trying to convert Kiki and his children. Some have said that that was the catalyst for the events on March 18, 2018. Ronnie's current girlfriend testified that she had also been on the phone arguing with Kiki all that day. Ronnie IV testified that he heard his parents arguing that night. In the court audio, some things are bleeped out and they're the names and ages of Ronnie's two children. This is common for courts to do when dealing with minors, but their names are pretty easily found online, so that's why I'm using them here. Can you tell us what, what is the first thing you remember about that night? the first sign to you that something bad was going to happen? Um, basically, I was sitting in my room, and I saw my mom and my dad arguing in their room. Were you awake or asleep? Awake when I saw. Okay, you were, did, but did something wake you up, or were you already awake and, and doing something? Well, they were just, like, screaming at each other. 
So you heard uh, heard your mother, mother and father screaming at each other. Yes. Okay. And what did you do? Did you, did you get up and look to see what was happening? Uh, yes, and my mom told me to get back in my room. Okay. And when you look out your bedroom door, can you see down? Were you able to see down in the bedroom where your your mommy and daddy were? Yes. Okay. And and tell us what you saw. Um, I just saw my dad holding a shotgun and my mom like and mom screaming at him. And they were just like fighting. Have you ever seen that shotgun before? Yes. Um, where have you seen the shotgun? Under the bed. The boy testified that he saw his parents arguing and that he saw his dad chase his mom with a shotgun. You saw your mother and father arguing in the bedroom and your and your father had a shotgun. What happened next? What did he do? My, my mom ran to my sister's room. My mom ran in my sister's room into the closet. And was your sister's room right next to yours? Yes. So your mother had to kind of run toward you? Yes. And did you see that happen? See her run? Yes. Okay. And when your mother ran into your sister's room, what did your father do? Did he go after her? Yes. And did he have the shotgun with him? Yes. Ronnie the Fourth had testified that his father and mother had been arguing over religion that night. It seemed that Ronnie wanted to force his family to begin following the Nation of Islam. And then my dad told me, to walk around and say, like, some words. And do you remember what words your father told you to say? Uh, Allah Akbar. Allah Akbar? Yes. And he told you to walk around and say that? Yes. And did you do that? Yes. And where where were you where were you doing this walking around and saying Allahu Akbar? It was like you would walk like at the front door and you would walk in and then it was there so like the living room. Then Ronnie tries to get his son to help him kill Kiki. And then my dad said, Come in here and uh, come kill this uh, the B word and then I went in the room and then he handed me the shotgun and, like, helped me shoot it. And you went into back into your sister's room? Yes, because you said, come help me. Like, or, yeah. Did you hear any shots from the shotgun before that? Yes. How many times? One. One time? Yes. So when you went back into your sister's bedroom, did your father hold the shotgun in your hands? Yes, he was helping me. So were you both kind of holding it at the same time? Yes. Do you remember whether the gun went off while you were holding it? Do you remember? No, I do not. Do you ever remember that any more gunshots from the shotgun other than the one that you just testified or is one shot all you remember? Yes. Just the one shot? Yeah. Ronnie the Fourth testified that his father took him into his sister's room and helped him hold the shotgun pointed at his mother. He said that he couldn't remember if the shotgun went off at that time or not. 
I couldn't find any information that said whether or not she was shot at that time, and I don't believe there's any way to tell, but I seriously hope she wasn't. This poor child is already traumatized enough. He doesn't need to have the memory of shooting his own mother. He did say that he heard the shotgun go off once before them. It seems as though Kiki was shot twice with the shotgun, once in the shoulder and once in the arm. Ronnie the Fourth continues telling the story. Was there a time when your mother was able to get out of the closet? Uh, yes. I was sitting, or I was standing right by the, like, our house phone. And, um, I just saw her, like, she was, like, stumbling outside. And then I just saw my dad chase her. So your mother stumbled past you going outside. Did she go out the front door? Uh, yes. Can you tell us when she ran out the front door if, if she was hurt? Were you able to see whether or not she was hurt? No, it was dark. Okay, was she saying anything? Uh, no, nothing there, I remember. Was your father chasing her? Yes. Did he still have the shotgun with him when he chased her out of, out of the house? Yes. Was your father saying anything? Saying anything? Uh, I don't know. I remember. Okay. So when your mother and father both leave the house, what did you do then? Uh, I was still standing by the house room. When Ronnie followed Kiki outside, it's unclear what exactly happened and in what order. It seemed as though Ronnie shot Kiki inside the house at least once, if not twice. Once Kiki ran outside, Ronnie followed her and he might have shot her a second time in the front yard, but he did definitely beat her with the shotgun. Ronnie the Fourth saw his father come back inside the house after a minute. He testified that his father went to the garage and retrieved a hatchet. After that, he went into Ron Nevea's room and dragged her by the arm into Kiki's bedroom. There, he hit the disabled girl in the back and the head with the hatchet, killing her. He hit her in the back and the axe and then the, and the head. And then there was blood everywhere, and then he lighted something. He lighted something with the tissue and a match. He lighted something with the tissue and a match. Yes. Do you remember? Um, do you remember fa your father ever having a can of gasoline? Yes. He like spread it everywhere, and then he got the match, and then, and then he dropped it on the ground, and then. But like all the fire up here. Before he did that, did he cover your sister with anything? Cover? Did he? Yeah. Did he put anything over top of your sister? Do you remember? Um, you don't remember? No. Okay. Um, but he started a fire in that room. Did he close the door? I do not remember that. No. Okay. What What happened next? And then he went in the garage, I followed him. And then he um he put me on the ground. He put like he put me on the ground and then he like had his foot on top. I was laying on my stomach, he had his foot on top of me and he was holding me down. And he was like lighting a match. He was lighting a match with the with the tissue and then he threw it down. He threw it down. Ronnie decided to represent himself during his trial, a capital murder trial where the state was seeking the death penalty, just about the worst decision you can make. At the end of the day, I don't think Ronnie wanted to accomplish anything other than to make a mockery of the entire trial.
Throughout Ronnie the Fourth's testimony, the prosecutor seemed to be leading the witness. If Ronnie knew anything about the law, he could have objected to that, but instead he sat there and listened as his son provided damning evidence against him. Representing yourself at trial is statistically a risky move. Wasim Dacre represented himself after he murdered a flight attendant in 1995. Colin Ferguson represented himself after killing six people on a Long Island commuter train in 1996. Ted Bundy represented himself when he was at trial over two murders and a series of assaults in 1979. Rodney Alcala represented himself at multiple trials in the 1980s. The one thing that all of these defendants have in common besides the fact that they represented themselves? They were all convicted. There are examples of people winning court cases after representing themselves, but they're rarely criminal trials, and those wins are usually appeals. Like the case of Hassan Bennett, who had been locked up for 13 years for a crime he didn't commit, and it wasn't until he started acting as his own counsel that he was able to get his conviction vacated, and he was granted a new trial in 2017. He compiled the evidence and exposed the detective who had coerced false statements from witnesses and won his freedom. That isn't a common tale and probably wouldn't have happened if the lead detective wasn't so brazen with his own corruption. Back in the courtroom, where Ronnie IV is testifying against his own father, he continues recalling the events of March 18th. Um, so when he tried to put me on the fire or whatever, um, he tried to light the match and put me on fire, I quickly ran up and went in the kitchen. And then... And then I backed up, he like opened a drawer and then, and then I remember like my mind just like, I was understanding anything. And then I walked out the front door. Okay, so you remember when he was holding you down with his foot and after that you were able to get up and run into the kitchen? Yes. And you remember him going to the kitchen with a drawer in the kitchen? Yes, the drawer in the kitchen, that what you said? Yes. Yes. Do you remember getting burned at all? Yeah. What do you remember about coming outside the house? Just flashes everywhere, and I just remember going to someone and saying that my dad killed my mom, and then I got like a mask put on me, and then I don't remember anything from there. Was there a lot of lights flashing and stuff when you came out yeah. of the house? Yes. It's hard to understand what he says, but it seems that Ronnie had his son on the ground and had his foot on him to hold him down. He splashed gasoline around and tried to light a tissue on fire to use to ignite the boy. Ronnie the Fourth got up and ran to the kitchen, and once there, his father pulled a knife out of a drawer and stabbed him. Then Ronnie the Fourth ran outside. During the attacks, Kiki managed to call 911 and could be heard by operators begging for her life. Ronnie could be heard in the background yelling Allahu Akbar, which means God is most great in Islam. We'll be right back. At some point, Ronnie called 911 himself. 911, what is your emergency? Hey, I've just been attacked by some white demons inside with this Kiki. Kiki, her name is Kiki, and she tried to kill me. What's Huh? He's claiming that some white demon was inside Kiki and was trying to kill him. It seems as though this was the beginning of Ronnie's plan to try to claim insanity. That's just my opinion. When first responders arrived, they saw Ronnie the Fourth running out of the house. He had been stabbed multiple times in his neck and in his abdomen. 
The wounds in his abdomen were so severe his intestines were visible. He was rushed to the hospital, where he miraculously survived. Police found Kenyatta laying in the front yard. Ronnie was standing next to her, saying, quote, You don't understand. She killed me. End quote. Officers tased Ronnie when he ignored commands to get on the ground. One firefighter went into the home as it burned to search for other victims. And I don't remember if it was a deputy or a bystander came by and said that there's another child inside the house. I could see a faint orange glow somewhat off to, to my left, and I realized that the floor was covered in, in, in blood. Everything in the room was on fire, so clothes, wall, ceiling. Um, once again, visibility was limited. He made his way into the master bedroom where he found Ronavea's body and pulled her out of the house, believing that he had a patient. When he finally saw the extent of her wounds, he knew that she was already gone. What did she do then? <laughs> uh, hug my other firefighter and cry, to be honest with you. In the backseat of the squad car, Ronnie continued yelling, quote, Kiki is the devil. The kids are the devil's kids, end quote. Ronnie was evaluated by three doctors who initially determined him to be not mentally competent to stand trial. Eventually, though said to suffer from paranoia and delusions, he was declared fit to stand trial. Not only that, but Ronnie was going to represent himself. Judge Michelle Sisko warned Ronnie multiple times that he should use a lawyer, but he wouldn't budge. He was going to represent himself and prove his innocence, though how he was innocent was never really clear. The evidence is going to show! He starts his opening statement by screaming that the prosecution tampered with evidence and that he was going to show who the mass murderer in Tampa Bay was. 
Ronnie's original claim was that Kenyatta had murdered Ronivea, stabbed Ronnie IV, and lit the house on fire, and that he killed her in self-defense. So I guess he's going to attempt to prove that the police and prosecution tampered with the evidence to make it look like that's not what happened. He never does tell us who the mass murderer in Tampa Bay is, though. Which sucks, because I was curious, but I guess we'll never know. Anything that I may have said, they exacerbated it and made me say it consecutively over and over like a law who act by. Which I may have said once or twice, but they wanted to make me seem like a terrorist And so you hear it eight or nine times, and you hear me calling Kenyatta Baron a bitch and a whore. And that's it. That's the end of his statement. He pauses there, and I was waiting for him to make some sort of point, but nope. I called her a bitch and a whore. Next. He claimed that they tased him for no reason, and that they edited the video to cover up the truth. He claims that his son never actually saw him shoot Kiki. He claims that he called 911 at the same time that Kiki had, but the police made it seem like he called later, and I'm not 100% sure why that matters. But nothing tops this. I'm asserting justifiable homicide because I acted in self-defense and moved to protect myself and my children from Kenyatta Barron. I'm going to be showing with evidence several reasonable reasons to doubt the state's allegations against me. The evidence will show that the state cannot prove that I premeditatedly killed anyone because I didn't have any time to reflect or plot and plan as if uh, everything happened suddenly and spontaneously. I responded out of pure instinct and heat of passion, eliminating any kind of premeditated design. And let me just say, the evidence will show that since The state plans to kill me if they can say that I killed my family unjustly. They plan to premeditatedly kill me so they cannot say or deny me the right to premeditatedly kill Kenyatta Barron if she killed my children. I don't think he understands what the word evidence means. I gotta try to wrap my head around this. The evidence is going to show that since the state plans to kill me if they can say I killed my family unjustly, they plan to premeditatively kill me so they can't deny me the right to premeditatively kill Kenyatta Baron if she killed my children. So he's working on a little reverse eye for an eye situation here. Since the state is going to sentence him to death for killing his family, then they can't tell him he can't sentence Kenyatta to death for killing her family. 
and somehow he believed he had evidence to support that claim. His entire method of defending himself is like a conspiracy theorist on the internet. They'll tell you some crazy idea like there are mole people living underground, and then they'll send you quote-unquote evidence that's just a YouTube video of some guy talking about how it's true. I think that Ronnie sees his own explanation of the events as evidence. He's like, the prosecutor showed you a video? Well, it's tampered with. Boom. Evidence. My son testified that I stabbed him? Well, he's lying. Boom. Evidence. Like this. The evidence will also show that he was present, but does not remember accurately or consistently what happened for many reasons, making him unreliable when it comes to the actual facts. He also has been diagnosed with PTSD, as he should be, because this is a very traumatic thing that he went through. He also was diagnosed with major depression disorder, intermittent confusion, and delirium. The evidence is going to show, the evidence and testimony will show that Ronnie Blair, formerly known as Ronnie O'Neill IV, may have been coached on what to say by family members. Objection to argument. Wait, hold on, wait, hold on. I will overrule the objection. Thank you, John. Mr. O'Neill, again, jury, this is what both sides believe the evidence is going to show. All right, and again, you will be the ultimate determiner of what the facts are. The evidence is going to show that Ronnie the Fourth may have been coached? No, there's no evidence of that. Hey, I think he was coached. Boom, evidence. The trial takes place about three years after the attack, and Ronnie the Fourth is all healed up. He has also been adopted by one of the detectives who worked on the case, which is why Ronnie calls him Ronnie Blair, formerly Ronnie O'Neill the Fourth. After young Ronnie got out of the hospital, he was living with relatives, but it didn't work out. The social worker talked to Detective Blair, asking if he knew anyone who could take Ronnie in. Detective Blair's entire family agreed that they should adopt Ronnie and become his new family. So Ronnie got a new mother and father and five new siblings. Not to replace his old family, but to have his support in this new phase of his life. Detective Blair actually didn't have much involvement in the case, but he just happened to go by the hospital to check on the victim one night, and a connection was made. They talked about football, and since Detective Blair had a connection with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, he would bring Ronnie items from the team. It was on one occasion while Detective Blair was about to leave the hospital, Ronnie asked if he would stay and watch a movie with him. Even though he had to go back to work, he called his wife and asked her if they could change their date night plans and watch a movie with Ronnie instead. Detective Blair's wife, Danielle, knew that night that she wanted to take Ronnie home with them, but the process wasn't that simple. Ronnie had already been placed with family members, but when issues arose with the living arrangements, the Blairs knew what they had to do. With all five of their children on board, they adopted Ronnie and made him a Blair. They've taught Ronnie that in times of stress, just to say to himself, I am safe, I am loved, I am part of this family. We'll be right back. That stress was probably pretty high when he was cross-examined by the defense, who just so happened to be the man who stabbed him and tried to set him on fire. Do you remember doing an interview with Detective Dirks? 
Yes. Did you guys go to basketball and football games and things like that together? I'm sorry, say that again. Did you guys go to a Bucks game together? Yes. Did you guys talk about anything that happened that night? No. No? At any time, did he talk to you about those things and tell you what to say here today? No. What about your new dad, Richard? No. Ronnie O'Neill III's lack of law skills really come out during his cross-examination of Ronnie IV. Right out of the gate, he tries to ask him if he remembers the two of them hanging out in the neighborhood, and he's instructed that he can't ask questions about just anything. He can only ask Ronnie IV questions that relate to questions the prosecutor asked during his direct examination. So then there's a long pause while Ronnie tries to regroup, and then he asks his son about the Bucks games. He then spends a good 20 minutes asking Ronnie questions, and then reading him answers he gave other times that don't match. He asked him, did you see me beat your mom? To which the boy answers no. Then he read from a transcript where the person who was assigned to be his legal aide, Jennifer Miller, interviewed Ronnie IV. She asked who got shot, and Ronnie IV answered his mom. Then she asked if he heard or saw, and he said both. He does this with every detail of the crime, not realizing how bad it makes him look to the jury. He's splitting hairs with a child who was seven years old at the time of the attack who was bombarded with questions from strangers while he was in the hospital on drugs with tubes in him. Did I hurt you that night of this incident? Yes. I did. And how did I hurt you? You stabbed me. Do you remember telling Detective Dirks? After he asked, did your dad hurt you the night that he hurt your sister? And you said, no, he didn't hurt me. Do you remember that? No. Ronnie's reading from a transcript where his son told Detective Dirks that his dad never hurt him. But then, wouldn't the detective ask him who did? The boy is in the hospital covered in stab wounds. The detective didn't ask him who stabbed him? And why is that left out? If Ronnie IV said someone else stabbed him, wouldn't Ronnie be dying to read that part of the interview? My son wasn't able to answer questions immediately after being stabbed and set on fire while he was in the hospital. Boom! Evidence! This is all the redirect that the prosecution needed. That night, when this happened, did you set the house on fire? No. Did you ever see your mom set the house on fire? No. How about she set the house on fire? No. Did you ever see your mom hit your sister that night with an axe or a, no. or a hatchet? No. No. Did you hit your sister that night with a hatchet? Would you have done something like that? No. 
did you ever see anybody holding the shotgun other than your father and when he helped you hold it in that bedroom? No. This all happened back when you were old, didn't it? Yes. Have you, over the last three years plus, have you had to talk to a lot of people about what happened that night? Yes. And last year, you, do you remember giving a deposition last year? Yes. Okay, and that's something that lasted all afternoon, didn't it? Yes. And you were asked a, a lot of questions about this in a lot of detail, weren't you? Yes. About things that happened when you were years old? Yes. And when you gave your interview to Detective Dirks, were you still laying in a hospital bed when that happened? Yes. And when you were laying in that hospital bed, did you have tubes in your arms and you were hooked up to some machines and stuff? Yes. So far, the case is not looking good for Ronnie, but when the prosecution rests, he's finally able to call his own witnesses, and this is where the real evidence comes in. First, he called his stepfather, Billy Smith, to the stand. He testified that Ronnie had called him the night of the murders and said, quote, Kiki is trying to kill me, Kiki is trying to kill me, they're trying to kill me, end quote. Then there was some noise in the background and the line went dead. Boom. Evidence. That wasn't all, though. Ronnie finally brought out his big guns, his piece de resistance, his ace up his sleeve. He called his neighbor to the stand to testify as an eyewitness to the attack. His wife started trying to run away, and he went and he grabbed her, and she was on the sidewalk, and he stood over her, did this, like, striking thing, like, three times, and he shot her. What the fuck? His big witness testified that he saw Ronnie hit Kiki three times with a shotgun and then shoot her. What was the point of that? Oh, there was a point, just not a good one. He showed you a fraudulent recording where they alleged that I beat Kenyatta Barron to death. He talked about Mr. Khalil Brown, my neighbor who stayed across the street. But if Mr. Khalil Brown was a help to them proving me guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, they would have called Mr. Khalil Brown. But I called Mr. Khalil Brown to be a witness for me. And I didn't ask him to lie about one thing that he saw that night. I asked him to tell the jury exactly what he saw that night. And you have to ask yourself why that is. Because he's playing a fraudulent damn recording of me beating Kenyatta Barron 15 damn times when that did not happen. And like I told you earlier, you will know the truth, whether in this trial or the next one. Better believe it. If you think I'm here to play around with y'all, God damn it, I'm not. All right.
right, Mr. O'Neill, please stop using um, swearing language. It's not appropriate in a closing argument. Ronnie is explaining that this giant gotcha moment is because the prosecution is claiming that he beat Kiki 15 times, when the neighbor only saw him beat her three times. That's his big piece of evidence. Clearly, the neighbor didn't see the entire attack because the shotgun was destroyed when the police arrived on the scene. If the neighbor saw Ronnie shoot Kiki, then he clearly beat her with it more after that because the shotgun was in no fireable condition when police arrived. There's no logical explanation as to why the shotgun would be in that condition if he hit her three times and then shot her. What, then it just spontaneously exploded? Not surprisingly, Ronnie O'Neill III was found guilty of two counts of first-degree murder, one count of attempted murder, and one count of arson. For the penalty phase of the trial, Ronnie decided to cut his losses and let an actual attorney argue against the death penalty. During that phase, the defense had forensic psychologist Scott Mackless, who you might remember from the John Johnchuck case, testify that Ronnie wasn't fully responsible for his actions because he had been molested when he was five years old and never got treatment for it. The incident where he was shot and nearly died also increased his paranoia and delusions. The problem I have with Scott Mackless is he only ever seems to testify for the defense for money. Not only has he testified for the defense in the Ronnie O'Neill III and John John Chuck Jr. cases, but he's the same psychologist who testified for the defense in Brian Johnson Jr.'s case of a murder in 2016, as well as for the defense for Brooke Schuyler Richardson, who disposed of a baby she claimed was stillborn. He testified for the defense for Qaddafi Kareen Mullins, who pleaded guilty to murdering three people in 2008, and testified for the defense of Joseph Anthony Vasquez for the 2017 sexual battery on a victim less than 12 years old. Oh, and there was Kevin Lee Coleman for two counts of first-degree murder in 2016. As a matter of fact, I can't find any examples of him testifying for the prosecution, I find it suspicious that these kind of expert witnesses always only testify for one side. This guy seems to always testify for the defense that the defendant is not fully responsible for their actions in some way. Seems fishy. Well, maybe it worked. Or maybe Ronnie's crazy defense worked. Either way, the jury was not able to come to a unanimous decision to sentence him to death. So, they recommended life for each count. Judge Sisko said this during his sentencing. Little Ron Idiot, she couldn't scream, she couldn't run away, and she witnessed what you did to her mother for shooting her mother in the arm with the gunshot. She knew. And the horror that that child suffered. And she already had a life where she was born with challenges regarding her physical and her mental disabilities. But the pain and suffering that she suffered that night at your hands unspeakable, absolutely unspeakable. And at the moment, that first time you struck her with that hatchet, and little Ronnie testified that he, all he could see was tears coming out of his sister's face. At that moment, that child knew, she knew she was being betrayed in the cruelest, most tragic, and sorrowful way that a child could ever be betrayed. She was being betrayed by her parent, the one person that should be there to protect their children and love them and keep them from harm. And that was the last thing that child felt before she passed on from this earth was your utter, cruel, 
betrayal to her. Ronnie O'Neill III was sentenced to three life sentences without the possibility of parole plus 90 years, all to be served consecutively. Ronnie's defense filed a motion for a new trial based on their claim that Ronnie was denied his right to testify. The motion was denied because he absolutely was not denied that right. He had the opportunity to testify on his own behalf, and he chose not to. Not only that, but because he chose to act as his own counsel, he can't file an appeal based on ineffective counsel. You have to waive that right when you choose to represent yourself. When Ronnie made a statement at his sentencing hearing, he said, quote, I'm not sorry for something I didn't do, and I'm not sorry for the things I did do, end quote. But once his voice started to get louder, Judge Sisko threatened to throw him out of court if he started yelling again. Ronnie finally shut up. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local battered women's shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. The great thing about this website is that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught looking for help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operate the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you might be facing. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. You can subscribe or follow the show to ensure you don't miss an episode, and you can leave us a rating on whatever podcast app you use. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that by checking out our merchandise at Teespring. You can also discuss the channel and the episodes on our subreddit, r forward slash this is monsters. You can find more ways to support our show and how to find us on social media by visiting thisismonsters.com. Thanks again and be safe. No. Good boy. Keep your hat on, pet. Why? We're playing dinner at the North Pole, remember? So we need to wear our big warm coats inside. When it comes to food or heat, many families will face impossible choices this Christmas. Please support the St. Vincent de Paul Annual Appeal. Donate locally or at svp.ie. Thank you.